Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. If you have your copies of God's Word with you, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Hear now the reading of God's Holy Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Our sermon text tonight is, I believe, the greatest interpretation of the incarnation event in all of Scripture. This passage is not like the other accounts of the incarnation found in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. There is no reference to Mary or Joseph or even of a baby being born in a manger. And that's because this passage is not narrating the events surrounding or leading up to the birth of Jesus. Rather, in this short little passage, the Apostle John is interpreting for us the significance of the incarnation in all its fullness. In other words, the Apostle John is throwing back the curtain and giving us unique insight into the life of Christ by explaining who he really was and why he came. And that is why I want us to spend time, and that is what I want us to spend time reflecting on and rejoicing in tonight. I want us to rejoice in who Jesus was and why he came. So first, let's consider and rejoice in who Jesus was. One of the interesting things about John's prologue in chapter 1 is that in leading up to our passage, it has not explicitly mentioned the name of Jesus Christ yet. And this continues into verse 14, where John picks up where he left off in verse 1 at the very beginning, talking about the Word. Now we need to understand that this term, the Word, is of the utmost significance for our passage tonight. In Hebrew, this term conveys the notion of divine 
self-expression, or speech. And in the Old Testament, we see that God's speech is powerfully effective. For example, in Genesis 1, God simply speaks, and his powerful word creates and brings forth the universe into existence. Hence, Psalm 33, verse 6 declares, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. Also, in the Old Testament, we see that it is through the word that God enters into a personal relationship with his chosen people. In Genesis 15.1, for example, we are told that it is the word of the Lord that visits Abram in a vision to enter into a covenant with him and his descendants after him. And it is through this same word that God speaks to Moses from the burning bush and discloses the personal name of Yahweh, his personal name, to him. And lastly, it is the word of the Lord that time and time again comes to his prophets to commission them to speak on his behalf. And it is through these prophets that the word of the Lord holds his people accountable for their unfaithfulness, and yet nevertheless unceasingly calls them to return to him. So then, we can clearly see in the Old Testament that it is through this divine word that God both creates and also relates to his creation. And it is the same, and it is the same divine word, this very expression of God himself that the Apostle John is now saying has taken on flesh in verse 14. According to John, this means that God has now expressed himself in a mortal man, in a human being. But before we move on, we should clarify and realize what this verse is not saying. This verse is not saying that the word ceased being what it was and transformed into something else entirely. Rather, the point that the Apostle John is making here is that the word continues, continues to be the divine self-expression while also becoming flesh. So the word is both divine and human at the same time. This verse then describes what theologians have come to call the hypostatic union which refers to the joining of the divine nature and the human nature in one person. But in such a unique and mysterious way that so that there is no confusion, change, or division between the two natures themselves. In other words, the divine nature and the human nature are united together in a real person, yet they remain distinct from each other 
without separation. Now, besides the doctrine of the Trinity, there is no concept in all of Scripture that is so profound and mysterious as, as this. But this is the greatness of the Word of God. Who He is and what He does is beyond our understanding. He is greater and more capable than anything that our feeble minds can comprehend. And this is why, this is why we worship him. And yet, it is very interesting to note that the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, describes what took place in this incarnation event as God emptying himself. God emptying himself. Which means that as great as this act of God was, It was actually not a dignifying thing for the Word of God to become flesh. And the word flesh actually emphasizes this very point. Because in Scripture, the word flesh is a derogatory term that emphasizes humanity's frail, feeble, and almost transient nature. Hence, the prophet Isaiah declares that all flesh is like grass. This leads the great theologian John Calvin to comment on the undignified nature of the incarnation by by exclaiming, and I quote, Oh, how great is the distance between the spiritual glory of the word of God and the stinking filth of our flesh. Yet the word of God stooped so low as to take to himself that flesh addicted to so much wretchedness. End quote. So like I said, this taking on flesh was not a dignifying event, but rather an utter act of condescension and humiliation on God's part. Which, when you think about it, is profoundly antithetical to the culture that we live in today. In a day and age when people are constantly trying to express their true selves and demanding to be loved and adored for who they claim they are, in a day and age when people are constantly demanding that their rights be respected, here we stand confronted by God Almighty, who, although he was the creator and ruler of the universe, stooped so low as to take to himself a form of a servant by being born in the likeness of men. The Apostle John continues by saying that not only did God take on flesh, but that he actually dwelt among us. This means that the word didn't just momentarily engage in an act that was beneath him, but that he stayed and continued in this new form as he lived amongst a sinful and rebellious people. And here, once again, we need to pay particular attention to the wording of our text. 
Because in the Hebrew, the Greek verb for he dwelt is more literally translated as he pitched his tent or he tabernacled among us. And this is something that John's original readers would have recognized immediately. Such language is meant to point us back to the time of the Exodus when God dwelt among his people in the tabernacle that was located in the very center of the Israelite encampment. So by his choice of words then, the Apostle John is making the point that God has once again taken up residence among his people, but this time in an even more personal way, in the word made flesh. Now in ancient Israel, only the priests and Levites were allowed to work and be near the tabernacle, and only the high priest and Moses were ever allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, the most sacred part of the tabernacle where God himself would descend. But now, in the word made flesh, God has come to dwell amongst all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. And whereas it used to be that the people had to make themselves clean before coming to the tabernacle, the word made flesh, this true tabernacle, now comes to us to make us clean. And whereas it used to be forbidden to lay hands on the tabernacle, now the word made flesh lays his hands on us to bring healing to his people. And whereas it used to be that the people made sacrifices for their sins in the tabernacle, now the word made flesh, this true tabernacle, offers himself up as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people once and for all. So then we see that not only is this word this word, God's divine self-expression in the flesh, not only is he that, but the word is also God's sanctifying presence that dwells amongst his people. But John's description of the divine word, as great as that is, does not even end there. He continues on in verse 14 by declaring, and we have seen his glory Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the word glory here in our text is often used in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, to talk about a visible manifestation of God's presence. So for example, in Exodus 40, we read about the glory of the Lord descending on the tabernacle at its dedication after it had first been built. And on that occasion, the glory of the Lord was so powerfully concentrated in the confines of the tabernacle that not even Moses himself, Moses, who used to talk with the Lord as if they were friends chatting face to face, not even Moses was able to enter the tabernacle when the glory of the Lord descended on it in that way. And it is that same glory that John and other believers like him 
have now seen so powerfully concentrated in this incarnate word. John then immediately goes on to explain that this is the kind of glory that could only be possessed by he who is uniquely the Son of God, who is uniquely loved by God the Father. But we must ask, we must ask ourselves, exactly in what sense is the incarnate word the unique Son of God? Well, first of all, he is not the Son of God in the sense that he was born or created by the Father. Rather, he is called the Son of God because he is exactly like God the Father in all his attributes. This is so much so that Hebrews 1.3 tells us that the Word is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's also referred to as the unique son of the father because John means to describe something of the relationship that exists between the persons of the Godhead. The word incarnate relates to God the father as a son relates to a father. So for example, just as Noah, my seven-month-old son, just as he will one day and I look forward to this, one day do all the chores that I don't want to do around my house, uh, according to my bidding, if you will. So the word incarnate does his father's bidding by manifesting God the Father's glory. It is a kind of glory that is full of grace and truth. Next. We need to understand that the words grace and truth here are describing the way in which the word incarnate is manifesting the glory of God the Father. In order to fully appreciate this fact, we need to realize that God could have manifested his glory in any number of ways. For example, God could have just as easily manifested his glory among us in wrath and judgment with fire and brimstone. But he chose not to do so. Instead, for our sake, he chose to manifest his glory in grace and in truth. And we see this grace and truth being manifested most clearly in the word and deed ministry of Jesus Christ. Thus, the incarnate word manifests the truth of God as he preaches good news to those who are near and good news to those who are far off, as he calls sinners to repentance and as he proclaims to the lost, Behold, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That... That is the great and glorious truth that the Word manifested in his flesh as he dwelt among us. And what we see time and time again in John's Gospel is that the divine Word backs up this truth with his deeds of grace. We see that he manifests his divine grace as he proclaims the truth by feeding the hungry, 
healing the sick, casting out demons, and raising the dead to life. And nowhere, nowhere was this divine grace more evident than in his own death and resurrection. His death on the cross, where he willingly gave up his own life for our salvation, was the ultimate manifestation of his grace. And together, his grace and truth manifested God's glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. But this, my friends, was not the typical kind of glory that the world thinks about. Glory, according to the world's way of thinking, is full of pomp and power. Now, this was a glory veiled in humility and weakness, which is why John does not make the point to say that everyone saw his glory. John doesn't say that everyone saw his glory. Instead, he only says, and we, we saw his glory, meaning that only John and other believers like him actually beheld the glory of the incarnate word. You see, the word made flesh possesses the kind of glory that can only be seen by eyes of faith. So the question for you and me this evening, as we examine our own hearts in light of Scripture, is, are we seeing with eyes of faith? Have we beheld the glory of the one and only Son of God who is the Word made flesh? I fear, I, I, I fear personally that we live with so many distractions that many of us simply go through the motions of everyday life without ever seriously considering this question. Are we seeing with eyes of faith? Which is why we must all heed the words of John the Baptist in verse 15, which cry out to us, Behold, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. We need to heed the voice of God's messengers who continually call us to gaze upon Christ and to see him for who he really is. Because he is the one who ranks before us. Because he existed before us. He is the unique Son of God who has always existed alongside God the Father from the beginning and through whom we have all been made and in whose very image we are made. Therefore, it is our duty to recognize him as such and to give him all the praise and honor that his position deserves instead of seeking it for ourselves. Make no mistake about it. No one has ever found eternal life by seeking their own fame and fortune. But John assures us in verse 16 that if we only seek the glory, the glory of the Son of God, 
then from the fullness of his glory, we shall all receive grace upon grace. Now, grace is simply the undeserved favor of God. But what exactly does this phrase, grace upon grace, mean? Well, according to one trusted commentator, it simply means that there is always grace after grace for all those who see the word for who he really is. This means that there is a never-ending supply of God's favor for you, for all those who put their trust in the one and only Son of God. But how can this be, you may ask? Why is this the case? Why should I be the recipient of God's never-ending favor just because I've put my trust in someone? Well, the answer to that question is pretty simple, actually. You are not, you are not the recipient of God's unmerited favor. Only the Son of God is the recipient of God's unmerited favor. You see, the Apostle John goes on to explain in verse 17 that the law might have come through Moses, which means that God expressed his standards of righteousness through a mere man. But God doesn't leave it up to a man, to a mere man, to fulfill the standards of his righteousness. Instead, God fulfills the standards of his righteousness in the person of his one and only Son, Jesus Christ, who is both man and God, in the Word made flesh. And it is only when we seek refuge in the tabernacle of the Word made flesh that we become benefactors of his perfect righteousness and receive God's unmerited favor because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. So really, it has nothing to do with you. And when we put our refuge, in, when we seek our refuge in Christ, the Apostle Paul tells us that we become new creatures who die more and more to our old sinful ways of living and live more and more according to the pattern of Christ's righteousness. So then our perfect, and when our perfection in Christ is complete, then, then we will be made suitable to dwell in the presence of God the Father for all eternity. Then we will know with Moses what it is like to chat with him as a friend face to face. This is why the Apostle John concludes his prologue in verse 18 by explaining that no one has seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Because without God the Son... Without Jesus Christ fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law for us, it would be impossible for anyone to have a relationship with God the Father. But Christ, through his perfect life, 
and through his death and resurrection has made a way for us to get there. And that way goes through him. Thus, Jesus says to doubting Thomas and his other disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we want to know God the Father, we must have a relationship with God the Son, the very expression of God the Father. And in him, we will know God. So in conclusion, not only is Jesus the Word made flesh, not only is he the perfect and mysterious union of the divine and human natures in one person, not only is he the tabernacle in whom the fullness of the glory of God dwells, Not only is he the one and only unique son of God, but he is also the one who has come to make God the Father known to his people. That is why he came. And it is precisely, precisely because of who he is, the divine self-expression that makes him uniquely qualified, uniquely qualified to, to, to fulfill this task. As a result, there is no greater gift that you and I could hope to receive this Christmas than Jesus Christ. So let us rejoice and be glad in him. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you that this time of year, Lord, is marked out for us to pause and to reflect on the great gift that you have given us in your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who though he was God, took the form of a servant by being born in the likeness of men. Thank you, Lord, that he was not a mere creature like us, so vain, so pride, so, so prideful and so arrogant. Thank you that he was full of grace and truth and that he has made a way through his death and resurrection for us to know you. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see him, eyes of faith to see him for who he really is so that we may know you intimately as he knows you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.